Hi, my name is Lucia Novak. I am the co-executive director of the Capital Health and Metabolic Center of Capital Diabetes and Endocrine Associates located in Silver Spring and Camp Springs, Maryland. Welcome to this educational activity on optimizing mealtime insulin therapy in individuals with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I'm going to show you how to do this with the assistance of Mindy Johnson and Alan Richardson in some simulated telehealth visits. This is going to be fun as well as informative. So most of you already know that insulin is indispensable when it comes to managing diabetes, especially those with type 1. They need it to survive. Many of the patients with type 1, however, are not being seen in the endocrinology space as often as they used to because there are fewer of the endocrinologists available. So many more are being managed in primary care settings. And so understanding how to utilize mealtime insulin in patients with type 1 is going to be very important. And what we have also come to appreciate is that type 2 is a progressive disease and some of our patients with type 2 will also need mealtime insulin therapy to best address their blood sugar patterns. So let's get started. Well, what are some of the issues that we have with insulin therapy? We know that there are several barriers and they are not isolated to people with either type 1 or type 2. Anyone with diabetes is going to have barriers that we as clinicians need to help them overcome. And we can do that with more physiologic types of treatments as well as better technology. So again, trying to use our team-based approach when it comes to managing diabetes, getting involved with the diabetes care and education specialists that can really work with our patients to overcome a lot of the barriers that you're seeing in the center of that circle is going to be critical and will help us as clinicians to move forward and not get stuck in that therapeutic inertia. We have lots of delivery options available for insulin and we can go anywhere from your common syringe with the vial for people who either that's their most affordable option or that's just what they prefer, all the way on up to an automated insulin delivery system that uses both an automated insulin pump as well as a continuous glucose monitor to help regulate that insulin delivery and match it to the glucose patterns that we are seeing. We will be talking about some of these things, but please know that neither one of the devices that you're seeing on the screen is limited to people with type 1, and they are very appropriate for people with type 2 diabetes as well. What we have learned from the Diabetes Control and Complications trial that was performed back in the late 80s and then published in the early 90s was that while glycemic control was really important in helping reduce those microvascular complications that our patients with diabetes are at very high risk for, it came at a cost of hypoglycemia. And the Diabetes Care and control, uh, Complications and Control Trial was actually um, done with people who had early onset type 1 where insulin is required and there is an inherent risk for hypoglycemia when we are using insulin. So if we could fast forward to a day where we have continuous glucose monitoring 
and perhaps more physiologically behaving insulin, then maybe we could reach those goals without hypoglycemia. And the use of continuous glucose monitoring has become more prevalent in the management of diabetes. And what this slide is showing you is that an A1C of seven is not an A1C of seven is an A1C of seven. In fact, these three different patients, all of them with that A1C of seven have very different glucose patterns with patient C having hypoglycemia 18% of the time and patient B 8% of the time. Enough hypoglycemia to offset the hyperglycemia, rendering them an average glucose with an A1C of 7%. We know that the more variability the blood sugars are, the more risk for hypoglycemia, the more risk for complications, both microvascular as well as cardiovascular. And patients just don't feel well and it impacts their quality of life. What this slide here is showing you are the appropriate time and range for different types of populations of people with diabetes. So on the far left is looking at your general population, type one, type two, we want their glucose to be within 70% of their day at that no less than 70 milligrams per deciliter when they are fasting and no higher than 180 milligrams per deciliter when they have eaten. And then depending on what else is going on with the patient, so someone that's older, higher risk, we reduce the time and range a little bit, but we also reduce the tolerance for how often we would want to see a blood glucose of less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. And there's also information that's looking at pregnancy. So people with either pre-existing type one or type two, or those with type two or pre-diabetes that may develop gestational diabetes. So we have those parameters there for you. But when we're looking at the ambulatory glucose profile, which I will show you shortly, we're going to be referring to the general population um, CGM profile. So looking at the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of the U100 mealtime insulins that we currently have and comparing that with what insulin production, what that looks like in someone who does not have type, two type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And so on the right of that screen, we're looking at the healthy controls, which are the darkest blue or black triangle on the screen. And as you can see at the tail end of three to four or five hours, that's the healthy control. And then layered on top of that are all of the different types of mealtime insulin currently available here in the United States. And what we're trying to do is mimic that pattern that we see the healthy subjects have on that particular graph. When we look to the left of the screen, again, what we're seeing is what happens when people eat? What does their blood sugar excursion look like? And what does their insulin excursion look like? And again, we're trying to mimic that healthy control response of that rapid onset of a bolus of insulin when we eat and the rapid removal of that insulin when we are no longer digesting food. So when we're looking at these um, pharmacokinetics of insulin, we have another type of insulin that is inhaled. There are some limitations with it. Well, first it does require to be inhaled. And just by nature, we have to make sure that the, the health of the lungs of patients that are using it is appropriate. So there is the requirement for a pulmonary function test at initiation. 
as well as ongoing monitoring while they are using this type of inhaled insulin. And perhaps one of the barriers to using inhaled insulin as frequently as we would hope would be accepted is that it is contraindicated in patients that may have asthma or COPD. And so that limits the population a little bit more. But when we compare the inhaled insulin with insulin Lispro, for instance, we see that the inhaled insulin, because it goes into the lungs and immediately available in the bloodstream, closely mimics the type of response that we see in people who are producing endogenous insulin and don't have diabetes. But when it comes to how people take their insulin or what device they're gonna to use to deliver it, it's really up to the patient themselves. And so knowing that the more often their sugars are within that safe range and the better they feel, that's going to be really what drives. And the more physiologic we are with delivering that insulin, the better our patients will do. And we typically see our people with type 1 diabetes reaching for some of those more complex therapies. We also wanted to think about that when we're looking at our patients with type 2. So those same parameters that we're thinking of, the same barriers are experienced by both people with type 1 and type 2. And so again, making sure that we are taking into consideration the patient before us and how do we address managing that insulin in the most safest and appropriate means based on what else is going on with them. So how well are we doing with managing people with diabetes, especially maybe those with type one with insulin therapy? I spoke earlier about the importance of that time and range, and we want at least 70% of their glucose is within that 70 to 180 milligram per deciliter range. And unfortunately, what's really happening is that most of our people with type one diabetes are only within that safe range 54% of the time, with numbers in both the hyper as well as in the hypoglycemic ranges. So what are the different regimens that we have available for people with type 1 diabetes? Well, the most important thing is to keep in mind they need insulin to survive. So regardless of how we are managing patients with type 1 diabetes, they are going to need a basal bolus regimen, meaning they need a baseline insulin to keep them safe when they're not eating, as well as insulin that will mimic their profile when they are eating. That can come with different types of insulin and they can inject using a syringe or with pens, or we can move them to a continuous insulin infusion by means of a pump or integrated with a continuous glucose monitor to help make that delivery of insulin a little bit more automated. But regardless, patients are going to need, especially those with type one, to really be on intensive management from the very beginning. This is what that would look like. So before we had pumps that were integrated with CGM, people with type one diabetes were poking their fingers and trying to use that data to determine how much insulin they needed before they were getting ready to eat, keeping in mind sleeping and other activities that may be happening shortly thereafter. And what you're seeing at the bottom is using that closed loop system where we're not just having the insulin delivery happening by a controlled mechanism, but now it's integrated with a continuous glucose monitor that's helping to adjust the regulation of that insulin. And what you're seeing is that there's a lot more life 
involved with managing type 1 diabetes. And this is not a pattern that someone with type 1 can mimic on their own. So again, as the technology moves forward, the more physiologic the delivery of that insulin, the better our patients will do. So when we look at folks that don't want to use a, a, an insulin pump, we have connected insulin pen devices that will help in the same type of way. It gives them that visual. So it's connected with the continuous glucose monitor. And when they administer their insulin, they will actually see when that insulin is peaking, how long that peak is lasting, where it's starting to wear off and they will see that on top of their continuous glucose monitoring to help them really understand the patterns that they are attempting to address. And any time that we combine the ability to see how insulin behaves with glucose, we see patients do better. And that is what this is showing you. Less hypoglycemia and also less hyperglycemia when they have more information. So we now have some insulin that are even more rapid acting when it comes to prandial type insulin. And that's really important when it comes to physiologic behavior of insulin and attaching that insulin to a glucose pattern. And what this is showing you is the difference between the ultra rapid acting Lispro uh, and with the, the the fast acting Lispro, which was the first generation, now we're looking at the second generation and the impact on post meal elevations, as well as with the first generation, fast acting Aspart, now with the faster acting Aspart. And again, what you're seeing is a quicker rise to peak, quicker onset, which means lower postprandial blood sugars for our patients with type one diabetes. And again, comparing that with the inhaled insulin. And again, what I really wanna to bring to your attention here isn't necessarily the type of insulin, but it, when we're looking at really refining the profiles of that insulin, we're seeing better impact on glucose control. So now let's take this information and see how it might apply to a person with type one diabetes. Please join me for a telehealth visit with Mindy Johnson, a woman in her early 50s with type 1 diabetes. Hi, Ms. Johnson. It's so good to see you again today. How are you? I'm good, Ms. Novak. How are you? I'm doing well. What's that look on your face? What's going on? <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm fine. I am. Um, but I suspect we're going to be discussing my numbers today um, and that I really haven't been in range as much as I should be uh, and have been in the past. Okay. So can you, yeah. can you provide a little bit more information? Cause the last time I saw you, things were going really well. You've had diabetes for a number of years. So what's changed since the last time? Um, well, so with the pandemic, I've been working from home um, and I do administrative work for an envelope company. And I'm actually working more hours now that I'm home than when I was in the office. And based on symptoms I'm having and friends who have it, I'm thinking I'm developing carpal tunnel. Um, I'm working constantly uh, and I'm finding that drawing up the insulin, injecting, it's, it's more uncomfortable and sometimes it's downright painful. Um, and so I know I'm not always as good as I should be. 
Um, so you've been missing both the, the once a day as well as the mealtime at times? No, I always do the one in the morning um, because okay. I don't, you know, I'm good with that. I haven't okay. been working all day, so I don't tend to feel the symptoms. Um, and then the other thing too, like with me working from home, a lot of times, you know, I'll grab a piece of fruit or I'm, I'm eating at my desk and it's not a meal per se. So I'll either forget or, um, you know, if I'm really in pain, I'll think, well, I'll get to it later. And I know this about myself. I do. Um, and honestly, I'm embarrassed about it, but that's, that's the fact of the matter. So I think it's a combination of those two things. Okay. Well, let's pull up your, um, CGM. So I'm okay. really excited that you were okay with starting the CGM. Cause that really helps me to look at all the data. So let me go into the portal. I'm going to pull up the CGM and we can look at the data together. Okay. I believe um, when my staff called to confirm your appointment, they should have emailed you. They did. Copy. Okay. That yep. way we can be on the same, the same sheet of music. So yes. to speak. Okay. So I am looking at your data right now for the last two weeks and I am seeing some changes, some differences from the last time that I saw you. What are you seeing when you look at this data? What are you noticing? Big fluctuations, big areas, you know, it, that shouldn't be there. Okay. Okay. So um, just so that we both are, are looking at the same thing, I'm just going to hold up my end. Mm -hmm. um, and so remember at the top here mm -hmm. is the red light, green light, yellow light. So right. it tells us the green is how many are in that safe range and then above or below. Mm -hmm. So let's start just right there. Can you tell me what the percentage that you're below the range in the red? Zero. Very good. Yeah. And so that is an excellent comment, actually. That means you're not having any hypoglycemia or low blood sugars. And that means that it's going to be a lot easier, so to speak, to address the elevated blood sugars. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. The other thing I noticed by just glancing, um, so at the bottom are the last two weeks of data, right? Each individual days. And in the middle, what I call that blue river, mm -hmm. that's all 14 days of data overlaid on top of each other to help us identify the patterns. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in the past, your blue river was always pretty narrow and flat because you were not having issues with carpal right. tunnel right. and you were, your routine was more consistent, so on and so forth. So, so there are definitely some changes and the more space that I see, the more up and down, and you can kind of see that down here. Yeah. So I'm going to flip to, um, the weekly summary. Mm -hmm where it's actually looking at that 14 days worth of data that's at the bottom of that first page, but spreading them out. So it's a little easier for us to see. Right. And what I want to draw your attention to is this date here, uh, um, the March 5th date. Do you see the pattern of that particular day? Yeah. What are you seeing? I'm seeing a flatter, consistent kind mm -hmm. of levels. Yep. And um, what about on the 9th of March? Same little Same. bit of deviation, but not much at all. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. the good news with that is that tells me when you are successful at 
being able to take your insulin, meaning that's probably a good day. The, the, the hands aren't as numb, tingly, painful. Um, your routine is not as crazy. The doses don't need to be changed. Okay. So it's just a matter of now adjusting how you're taking the insulin. Okay. How I'm taking it. Okay. So as you know, we've always spoken about the different options that are available. And I always like to revisit those. Um, there was a time where you were not going to separate yourself from your manual glucose meter. <laughs> and <laughs> you have learned to really trust and appreciate the consistency and the data yes. that you're getting from your oh, CDM. Yeah. So that's huge. So once again, we can talk about the different technologies that are available. So we, we do have insulin pumps that can deliver the insulin without you needing to perform all of those injections. So there's that. Okay. Um, we also have insulin pens. Um, and an insulin pen is similar to a syringe in that you still have to manually inject, but they are bigger as far as um, their circumference. So they're a little easier to grab and to manipulate oh, uh -huh. when you're dealing with dexterity issues. Okay. okay. My concern also with the vial is that with your carpal tunnel, have you ever had maybe drinking coffee, drinking water, a time where you just dropped whatever was in your hands because you couldn't feel it? No, I'm always able to, to feel it's more, okay. um, sort of the, the gripping and the turning it's, okay. it's more like, you know, here in my, in my wrist, really okay. not so much my fingertips. So that okay. hasn't been a problem. Good, good, good. Cause I worry with the glass vials, if they yeah. were to drop, they could break. So the good news is, is that the pens are plastic. So even if you did drop them, they're not going to shatter. You're not going to waste all that insulin and, and the cost of course, associated with it. Okay. Um, we also have pens that are integrated with certain CGM so that you can kind of marry the activity of the insulin with the pattern that you're seeing with your blood sugars. So it's almost like a pump, but with using a pen device that is complementary with a CGM, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So so those are some ideas that we have. We can also use some, there's also tools available to help with dexterity if you're really wanting to stick with the syringe and the vial. I think I, I've gotten so used to the syringe because you know I can see it, I know how much it is, I know how much I'm drawing up and injecting. Um, I'm gathering the pen, if it's plastic, it probably isn't see-through, I don't know how much I'm getting and I know, you know, when I was younger, that, that was an issue. And, and for me being able to see it equals control equals, okay. I'm managing correctly. Um, the pump I, you haven't, I don't even know how big it is or whatever, but I'm assuming if it's a pump, that means I'm wearing it. And honestly, I, I'm going to just be, I, I don't, I don't think I want to try that. Um, I think I'd be willing to try the pen, um, just because it sounds like it's not any more inconvenient than the syringes and vials. It might actually be easier dexterity wise for me to handle and actually get, you know, this under control. So that's something I would be willing to try. Okay. So, um, that's great news. And so we can certainly do that. And the, the, 
The great thing is, is that with your CGM, okay, so, so while the pens are plastic, you mentioned that you can't see the insulin, you'll, you'll be able to see the, um, the reservoir, the amount of insulin that's in there. So, oh, okay. So the pens have 300 units of insulin in each pen. Okay. And so you would be using that pen repeatedly. And what you'll be able to see is as if it was a vial of insulin, as you use your vial, you see how the insulin empties, correct? Mm -hmm. Well, right. it's similar with the pen. You'll see the amount being used, but you won't have that visual of what you've injected. Okay. So that is not going to be there. But I will tell you that the technology with the pens has been perfected since the early times that you had initially used them. Mm -hmm. And we have the benefit of you being on a CGM, yes. which means that you can True. actually see yeah. what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want, we can start you out on a sample and just kind of use it and see how things are going. And okay. then if you're really comfortable, I'll order the prescription for you. Okay. That sounds like a plan. I mean, I'm definitely okay. willing to give it a try. Okay. Um, and knowing that it's, it's coordinated with the CGM, that's another bit of sort of security for me that, you know, okay, good. I'm hitting the mark. I should be. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, earlier you also mentioned that you're kind of eating sporadically and busy and not always thinking. Okay. Yeah. And the type of insulin that we are currently using is a rapid acting insulin. It's not the regular insulin that you use way back when you were initially diagnosed. Okay. Um, but it still required you to back it up like 15, 20 minutes, I think is what you were noticing when you started right. preparing with your CGM. So we do have more rapid acting insulin. So we've got more physiologic appropriate insulin available okay. that is in the same exact family as the type of insulin you're using now, but the peak is, it's not more potent. It's not going to drop your sugars anymore. A, a unit is equal to a unit. Mm -hmm. but it starts to work a little faster and it leaves your system a little earlier. So it allows for a more physiologic blood glucose response to the insulin. Mm -hmm. But most importantly is it gives you some flexibility. You can take it right before you're eating during the meal. If you happen to forget, or your blood sugar tended to be a little bit lower before you started or any time after the meal, as long as it's within that five to 10 minutes of remembering that you, oops, forgot to take your insulin. You okay. would just dose it. You would dose it based on what your blood sugar was before. So you would right. just need to look at your, your CGM. Right. Okay. okay. Yep. Does that sound like something you'd want to try? And it absolutely does. It okay. absolutely does. And, um, I mean, I think that, uh, I think I'm willing to give it a try and I need to be, I just need to be better about, you know, getting the food and eating regular, more regularly. And, um, hopefully the combination of those two things will just, okay. you know, get so me back to where I need to be. Okay. So we'll start with, um, adjusting these things and see how you do. Okay. If you do decide to go back to the syringe, the new insulin does come that way. So we wouldn't have to worry about changing how you're taking your insulin. Okay. okay. Yep. So I'm going to put in a prescription. The difference with the pens and the vial, obviously, um, is pen and vial, but the pens, um, are, there's going to be five in a box and okay. the ones you're not using will remain in the refrigerator until you're ready to use them. Uh-huh. 
one that you are actively using stays out at room temperature and is good for about 28 days after you started to use it. Okay. So it gives you a lot of uses and you'll probably waste even less insulin than with the, with the vial. Okay. In addition, you're going to need pen needles in order to get the insulin out of the pen and into your body. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will order those as well. And the pens, again, if you, if you happen to drop it, it's not going to break. The needles are very discreet. You can put a handful of them in your pocket so you always have it. And you can carry that pen with you because it is stable at room temperature. Oh, so okay. No worry about, oh, I have to go get my insulin. Just keep it with you. Okay. Oh, that's, okay. yeah, that's easy. Okay. If you have any questions when you pick it up from the pharmacy, they can certainly um, provide some teaching and show you a demonstration on what to do. Okay. Um, but we are always available. Don't hesitate to reach out. Um, okay. And if you did want to start with a sample, just let us know when you wanted to swing by the office. We'll make sure to have it all ready for you. Okay. That's awesome. Thank you so okay. much. I really appreciate it. Now, I'm excited. Welcome. I'm excited to try it. Well, you look so much happier right now. So this is good. You've given me hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Where would we be without hope? That's right. So, <laughs> I'm going to plan on seeing you again in about a month. I just want to make sure that everything is going smoothly and you don't have any additional questions. Great. Thank you so much again. Uh, you're welcome, Ms. Johnson. It was a pleasure. You have a good rest of your day and I'll talk to you again soon. You too. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, that was fantastic. So now let's continue on with our next master class, which will focus on improving time and range and postprandial glucose management in patients with type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is a progressive chronic disease, and it progresses at different rates in different types of people. So we do now understand that the younger someone is at diagnosis, we see a much more rapid progression to requiring insulin therapy. This is something that we have seen in our adolescents that are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. We also know that there are people with type 2 that have genetic risk factors that will place them at a need to use insulin earlier in their progression of the disease. And so recognizing that there are some genetic tendencies on where insulin may come in will help explain that to patients and make it something that is a little bit more understandable for them. We also know that the lower the BMI or the less excess adipose tissue in the viscera also will require insulin to be used earlier in the phase of the disease especially if they are experiencing overweight or the disease of obesity in concomitant with their type 2 diabetes. The problem here is that insulin initiation and titration are often delayed in use with people with type 2 diabetes, sometimes by years, even when insulin is clearly needed. So when is insulin clearly needed? Well, when patients present with hyperglycemia and they are symptomatic, so meaning that they are experiencing polyuria, polydipsia, unexplained or unintentional weight loss, it's usually a wasting syndrome that we see, they will typically have A1Cs greater than 10% 
with blood glucoses often greater than 300 milligrams per deciliter. Those are the folks that are gonna need the insulin. They're in glucose toxicity, and very infrequently will a non-insulin agent work to improve glucose when they are presenting that ill. Another time that someone with type 2 diabetes may need to intensify treatment with insulin is if they are already on three or four non-insulin agents and their glucoses are not in the appropriate range, whether their time and range is not right or their A1C continues to be elevated. Sometimes as our patients get older, they develop chronic kidney disease that's age-related. They may have underlying hypertension or cardiovascular disease, and these other non-insulin therapies may be contraindicated in, in those types of patients, and insulin is always an appropriate choice for patients who may have kidney or liver insufficiency. We also want to keep in mind that sometimes our patients are on a lot of medications. Type two is a buy one, get three free disease. We often see hypertension and dyslipidemia and among other comorbids in people with type two, and the pill load can be overwhelming. So I would tell you it's not uncommon for me to hear patients say that they would prefer to use a non-pill or different type of regimen where they don't have to be burdened with additional pills. So they may have a preference. And then again, when they're just not doing well with what you have them on, then that's the time to revisit and figure out if insulin is needed. So when we looked at people with type one, we know that because they're not making any insulin at all, they need multiple doses of insulin from the get-go. Well, with people with type two, we have some flexibility. So where the guidelines are actually asking if patients have not been given the option to try a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which used to be only available as an injection, but now we do have oral forms, it is recommended that regardless of where they are in their career with diabetes, that we introduce a, a GLP-1 receptor agonist to their therapy. If it's contraindicated, it's not well tolerated, and the list goes on and on, then of course basal insulin would be the next step to intensifying treatment. But as we discussed a little earlier, sometimes it's not just basal insulin that people with diabetes need assistance with. They may need some help with the meals. And again, in people with type two, we have some flexibility. We don't have to right away start uh, an injection before every single meal that they eat. We can be creative and maybe choose a meal that seems to have the greatest impact on their glucose management and then advance from there. What this slide is showing you is a creative way of actually delivering that mealtime insulin. So this particular patch that is um, being shown in this illustration is someone that is wearing a device that delivers only the mealtime insulin. And we're comparing that bolus only patch, comparing it with pen delivery of the insulin for mealtime in people with type two diabetes. And so what you're seeing is that regardless of baseline, whether they were on the patch or on going on the pen, when we give patients ability to administer that insulin therapy at mealtime in a way that they prefer, if you look at week 24 for both of those groups, their blood glucoses were in a much more appropriate range. So again, it's not necessarily 
what we think the patients need. It's really what the patients feel most comfortable using. And so it's good to know that we do have choices for our patients with type 2 diabetes that can actually reduce their hemoglobin A1C by one and a half to 2%, regardless if they use the pen or the patch. So, and why is that so successful? Well, this is the data. We're seeing that they're more satisfied, they're more likely to, um, to incorporate it into their lifestyle, they don't feel as constrained, so on and so forth. So the better that someone feels about how they're managing, the better they actually do. And every single one of these were statistically as well as clinically significant. What this illustration is showing you is a little different. It's also a um, spring-loaded patch device. It's not the more complex computerized pump. It's something that a patient will change every 24 hours, but it has the ability to give them both basal as well as bolus insulin. And so again, when we have patients able to deliver their insulin at a time that is more physiologic and more accessible for them, what we typically find is not only do their blood sugars get into a better range, but they typically require less insulin to do so. And so anything that will reduce insulin burden and yet improve glucose management is definitely a plus. So this slide here is looking at the comparison of the ultra-rapid acting mealtime insulins or prandial insulin against what was initially thought to be fast-acting insulin. And we compare this in people with type 1 diabetes. Well, we're seeing very similar benefit in people with type 2. And so it's very important to know that there is not a particular insulin that needs to be used in a particular type of diabetes. It's really what's best for the, for the patient and what best matches their glucose pattern and helps them to achieve optimal glucose control with minimal hypoglycemia. So looking again at what does that look like in a bar chart, and again, we're seeing when you compare rapid-acting Lispro on the right with the ultra-rapid-acting Lispro on the left, you're seeing very similar time and range, but what is changed is the amount of time spent below range, that less than 70, less than 54 milligrams per deciliter, which is really important for our patients. And if we have improved postprandial glucose control, we will typically see the same with their hemoglobin A1C coming down. It's one thing to see that in randomized control trials. What's really happening out there in the real world is really where it matters to most clinicians because your patients are not in randomized control trials. And the good news is, is that we see very similar results when we compare the data of people who are using these more rapid acting insulin to manage postprandial control. This slide is looking at people with type 2 diabetes that are already on basal insulin, but now we're incorporating continuous glucose monitoring. And yes, we all know that the higher the A1C, the better reduction we actually see in glucose. But again, the only thing that was done differently here was instead of checking blood sugars with um, finger sticks and looking at uh, blood glucose readings, we gave them a little bit more information with continuous glucose monitoring. And just having that additional data helped them get to goal. 
And we see this is true regardless of what therapies people with type 2 diabetes may be on. This is showing you whether they're on insulin, sulfonylureas, GLP-1 receptor agonists, DP-4, it doesn't matter. Once we give them more information about their glucose, every single group did better and they also did it with less hypoglycemia if they were on an agent that would put them at increased risk for that hypoglycemia. So for those of you who may not be familiar with personal CGM or your patients for whatever reason may not have access to a personal CGM, you can still get valuable data of what their blood glucose patterns are that allow you to take action if you incorporate professional continuous glucose monitoring in your practice. And what this is showing is the use of a professional device at baseline, getting an idea of what that pattern is initiating some type of a treatment, whether it be sending them to an educator or making some lifestyle changes or making therapeutic pharmacological changes and then repeating it three months later. And again, what you're seeing is more time in range for patients. And that's what professional CGM can give our patients with type two diabetes as well as the clinicians that are helping them. So, Let's see how some of this information might apply to a patient with type 2 diabetes. I ask you to please join me for a telehealth visit with Alan Richardson, a man in his early 60s with type 2 diabetes. Well, hello, Mr. Richardson. Oh, it's good hey, Ms. Novak. Oh, I just, wait a minute. I gotta make a note of this. Okay, it just came in off the floor. Oh, goodness. It's so, been one of those days, I take it, huh? Every day is one of those days. <laughs> every day. Well, oh. I am so glad that we have this opportunity to meet. The last time I saw you, which was about two weeks ago, you mm -hmm. reluctantly agreed to wear a continuous glucose monitor so we could get a better idea of what was going on with your sugars. Yeah, it, 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 was, it, it was a bit of a, it was a bit cumbersome uh, okay. for a while. I wouldn't want to live with one. Okay. Uh, but, you know, it, yeah, it was, okay. yeah. It, it good. Was. Well, I'm, I am glad that you were able to wear it. And because we got some really good data about what's happening with your blood sugars. Yes, uh, I, I, I got a copy of the report. Good, good, I good, no good. What, I, I have no idea what's going on. here. Okay, well, we're going to look at it together. Yeah. It's all about patterns. Okay, mm -hmm. everything about blood sugar management is about patterns. And so the nice thing about the CGM is that unlike blood glucose testing, where you're testing, you could test 15, 20 times a day, and I still won't get the amount of data that makes the story more um, accessible to us as to what's happening. Yeah. So I'm looking at your first page. Okay. Right. Okay. Got it. Good. Definitely. Yes. So your first page actually gives us quite a bit of information. At the very top is um, a bar graph in different colors, green, mm -hmm. yellow, red, okay? Yep. And what you're seeing in the green, there's a percentage by it. Mm -hmm. That percentage says 68%, okay? So that means that you are within the safe range 68% of the time, which is really good. We aim to get you there about 70% right. 
of the time. So 68 is really good, okay? But we want to do that if we can avoid any blood sugars that are too low. So if you look at that bar graph, there's red bars at the very bottom, okay? Yeah. And you're below the low level of 70, which means you should not be less than 70 when you're not eating, okay? And no higher than 180 after you've eaten. Mm -hmm. That's what the ranges mean. So at the below 70, it shows that you're there 2% of the time over the last two weeks, you've been experiencing blood sugars that have been in an unsafe low range. Right. Okay. And that is something that you mentioned, right? Yeah. Before you were yeah. having that issue. So now we're, if we look in the middle and there's something that looks like a blue river, and it runs from one side is at midnight and the other side is at midnight. Oh, it's time. So you have a full 24 okay. hour view. Yeah. And the whole two weeks that you had it is just overlaid. Okay. All right. All right. So now that we know that you're within range a good chunk of time, but you're having some lows, can you tell me what your pattern is that you are seeing okay. in that Blue River? During the night, it, it goes down, 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 down. And it, it troughs out about six, seven o'clock in the morning. There you go. Yeah. And what's the other pattern you recognize? Well, look at there. Uh, it peaks somewhere around 10 o'clock at night, which is usually about an hour after I usually eat. Okay. So, All right. So you can see that pattern, right? Yeah. So that's what we're going to try to address is that pattern. Okay. Yeah. But before we can address the high sugars, because oftentimes what happens when your blood sugars go low, when you feel like you're having a low blood sugar, what do you do? Oh, well, it's just shaky and, and yeah. flush and sweat, anxiety. Yeah. Well, I don't need anxiety. Thank you. Um, and what do you do to make those symptoms go away? Eat something. You eat something. Right. Exactly. And the reason why I ask that, I know it sounds like, well, what do you think I'm going to do? Okay. Is because oftentimes the high blood sugars are a result of a low because it makes you eat. Okay. Yep. So okay. before I can adequately address the high sugars, we need to prevent mm -hmm. the low ones from happening. Okay. Yeah. So of all of the medicines that you're on, you're on that formin that you've been on since diagnosis. And mm -hmm. then we added the GLP-1 once a week. And then we mm -hmm. added the SGLT-2 inhibitor. And then finally, we added the insulin. So out right. of all of those things, 60 which one do you think is actually causing you to have the lows? Probably, I have no idea. I, I, well, no, I don't understand. Okay, so the and that's I, I, that's okay. That's what we're here to talk about. Yeah. So the insulin that you're on will cause you to have a low blood sugar, even if that was the only medication you were taking. Okay. The way the other medications, the metformin, the SGLT2 inhibitor, the GLP1, they don't make you make insulin in that way. So there's no low blood sugar associated with those 
when they're used together or by themselves. But anytime insulin's in the picture, there's a risk. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. So the other thing we need to understand is, well, how, what's the pattern or the profile of the insulin that you're taking? Okay. Right. And so you're taking it once a day. Yeah. You take it in the morning or at night. I usually take it at night after, okay. after my, my big meal. Okay. So it's interesting you say that because that insulin is actually not a mealtime insulin. Okay. Mm. The mm. way that it works is supposed to be keeping your blood sugar stable in between the times that you're eating and overnight. Oh. So let's say you didn't eat all day. You didn't have anything to eat. And all you did was take your meds. Okay, yeah. and let's pretend that you were not having any lows at all. Okay, right. so what do you think your blood sugars would look like if you didn't eat all day? What do you think this pattern would look like if you weren't having any lows? It would be a straight line. It would be pretty flat, very good. Yeah. And so that is really what the profile of that once a day insulin is doing. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. It's kind of the background. For Correct. Correct. Establishes so, a baseline kind of yes. thing. Yes. And so oh. it's, we could give you, I could give you a hundred units of that and we would never be able to address what's happening when you eat because that insulin doesn't behave that way. Oh. But at the same time, I'm going to tell you, you're on too much of that once a day insulin because you're having lows. On this for two years and I haven't figured that out for myself. <laughs> I didn't expect you to figure that out for yourself. This is called job security. That's why you're coming to see me. <laughs> okay. So now that we understand the pattern, let's figure right. out how we're going to address this. Okay. okay? okay. So we had talked before about the potential of needing um, additional treatment because you've had diabetes for mm -hmm. as long as you have had it. And you're already on medications that are not just addressing your blood sugar, but they're reducing your risk of heart, of having a heart event and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And that's really important. Okay. Because yeah. diabetes isn't just blood about pressure, blood cholesterol. Sugar. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But we also know that when the blood sugars are high, you don't feel real good and it can cause problems with your eyes and mm. damage to the kidneys as well as to the nerves. And so we need to kind of make sure that we're doing our best with keeping your blood sugars in that stable place where they're all in that green box with right. very little to next to nothing in the low, but we also don't want them to be too high, right? Right, right, right. Okay. So this is where we were talking about adding an insulin when you eat one that looks a little different, that behaves mm -hmm. differently and allows you to take it only when you eat. Okay. Right. Okay. And I know you were hesitant because you were like, I don't eat regular meals during the day at work. I don't, I don't even eat sometimes. Sometimes you're finding yourself, you have to eat because you're having a low, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what meal are you eating most of the time? Mostly this evening meal when I finally get a chance to settle down. I know eating heavily before bed isn't good, but it's the only time I do it. Okay. And that's your routine, right? Yeah. So we're going to address your routine. 
Oh, okay. okay. We can do that with either a patch pump. So we have different delivery methods for insulin. Mm -hmm. And if you're not sure what that is, um, you can go to the um, diabetes.org, which is the American Diabetes Association. Mm -hmm. And they have a consumer guide that shows you all of the products that are available. Cause I know you like to do research. So there's that. Okay. And I want you to think about that one. Cause I heard you, you didn't really like having something attached to you when you were wearing a CGM. So no, I'm not, no. I'm not pushing that on you, but I'm giving you options. So take a look at that and maybe we can discuss that in the future. Okay. But what we can do is the insulin that you're doing once a day, does it come in a pen? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the device that will be used to deliver this mealtime insulin is the exact same, uses the same type of needles. So there's no change there. Okay. And the only time we're going to use it is going to be before you eat your dinner when you're at home. Oh, all right. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. So even if you eat during the day at work, we're not going to be administering insulin because even when you do eat during the day at work, your blood sugars aren't nearly as elevated as they are mm -hmm. after dinner. Okay. 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 So we're going to make some adjustments to your insulin doses based on these patterns. Okay. Right. You're already having low sugars without any mealtime insulin. Okay. Right. Yeah. So if I were to add a mealtime insulin and didn't change anything, what do you think is going to happen right around there? Well, I don't think it's going to dip as far. Oh, it will. <laughs> oh. Okay. It may actually go lower. Really? Yes. You add a mealtime insulin. If we did and did not change how much of the other insulin you were taking. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. without changing the... the uh, right. Um, the basal insulin. Basal, that's the word. You got it. Okay. Oh, okay. So yeah, that would be do. compounding okay. the effect. Correct, correct. Oh, okay. So you're taking 60 units of that basal insulin. Okay. Yeah. So what I want you to do is we're going to reduce that dose. We're going to reduce it down to 40 units for right now, starting with right. tonight. Okay. Start oh. tonight with 40 units. Okay. And then starting tomorrow at dinner or whenever you pick up your insulin, mm -hmm. okay, your next dinner meal that you've had the insulin. We're going to start with five units of that particular insulin before you eat only your dinner and only when you eat your dinner. Oh, only when I eat. Yes. So if there's a night where you're just exhausted and don't feel like eating, you're not going to take that mealtime insulin, but you'll take your once a day basal insulin sure. every okay. time. Okay. Okay. So 40 units of the, of the basal and mm -hmm. five units right now of just before dinner, okay? Right. And this particular insulin is going to be a, um, a rapid acting, meaning that it starts to work so that it's mimicking how high the blood sugars and how quickly the blood sugars go up when you eat. Yeah. But because of it being a newer type, it's a little bit more physiologic, which allows some flexibility for you, okay? This is new for you, so you're still trying to figure out a routine, this particular insulin will allow you to take it right before you eat in the middle of the meal. If you just remembered then, and even after, if you don't feel like you're not sure how much you're going to eat, 
okay? okay. As long as it's within five to 10 minutes. Of oh, eating. great, great. Okay? Yeah. So I'm gonna recommend, um, I'll go ahead and put that into your pharmacy that we have on file. Right. And I'm gonna recommend that we follow up again in about a month just to make sure everything is okay. But um, you have my number and you have the email for the practice as well as access to my medical assistant if you have any questions. Yeah. But um, we'll revisit this in another month, but you reach out if you need anything before sure. then. Sure okay. thing, Ms. Novak. Appreciate All it. right. Well, it was okay. so good seeing you today, Mr. Richardson. You take care of yourself. You too, ma'am. Thank okay. you. Thank you much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you for joining me for those telehealth visits. I hope that you were able to identify a few strategies that may help you conduct your own appointments with your patients requiring insulin therapy. But before we go, I wanted to alert you to some very useful downloadable practice aids that are included with this activity. Just click on the menu on the left. I wanna say thanks again to our patients, Mindy and Alan, for your insights. And thanks to all of you very much for participating today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.